Welcome in, everyone. Hey, everybody. This is Everything Sucks. Let's Fix It. Episode 14. My name is Ben Mayer. My name is Anthony Buono. Today is August 27th, 2023. Holy cow is time flying. Flying by. I can't believe we've been doing this throughout the whole summer, man. Yeah. It's crazy. It's awesome. This is the first episode that's going to be featuring our intro song. Mm. Um, and I want to give a shout out to my friend who wrote it. His name is Tim Skula. He's on Spotify. He has an uh, he has a single out uh, titled Look At Me. Go check that out. Um, and he has an album coming out soon. But thanks for making the song for us, man. It's awesome stuff. Yeah. Really appreciate that. Um, I guess we could shout out that we we missed a week last week sadly we were in different places anthony had technical problems so he couldn't record remotely yeah my laptop broke so there is no audio that can come out of this laptop anymore it is it's so depressing that is tough um there so we do have a lot of current events but also it's kind of like a slow news cycle time i feel like yeah um the one big thing of course of course right before we get into this i'm gonna shift my chair okay openly to the audience um (laughs) We had a Republican debate. Uh, those, were, those were my Star Wars Legos that I hid from you guys that are now falling off the back of the bookshelf. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's so good. Okay, we're going to be talking about the Republican debate yeah. and what happened, was it important, what was its importance, and mm-hmm. then kind of how do people feel coming out of the debate. Yeah. Right? That sounds like a good agenda to me. We'll probably go all over the place. Yeah, we're going to go all over the place. This is going to be a riot because... I watched it live with two friends of mine who aren't very politically active. They're not very into politics, but we were all watching it, and we had a blast. Um, I thought, right off the bat, I thought Vivek Ramaswamy captured everybody's attention immediately. Mm -hmm. When everyone's going down, giving their opening statements, Vivek Ramaswamy looked right at the camera, looked right at everybody, and he's like, I'm a fresh new face. All these other guys broke everything. I'm going to come in. I'm going to fix it. I'm America first. Donald Trump was the best president ever, but I'm going to be better than him. Yeah. The crispness and directness, even towards the camera with which he delivered his messages, really screams that he believes everything he's saying. He speaks with a lot of conviction. He has a ton of confidence. And that's definitely something that was missing from a few of the other candidates. Oh, definitely. At least. I Look, I mean, compare Vivek Ramaswamy's opening statement to... Um, Ronald Meatball DeSantis's opening statement. Oh it's not comparable. Yeah. So I think DeSantis... So DeSantis obviously is coming into this as the leader in the polls of the people on stage. Trump chose to skip the debate because he's blowing everyone out in the polls. Um, and so the expectation was that DeSantis would be targeted the most, that he would get the most time speaking on the stage. And neither of those things happened. No. And right out the gate, I thought he was so, like, socially inept. Socially inept is the best Almost, word. So I, I wrote a bullet point about it, and I really appreciate myself for this description. <laughs> I say, DeSantis is like a poorly tuned machine. The droids in Star Wars are just as inhuman, but far more likable. <laughs> That's so perfect. The droids are funnier and have more charisma than Ron DeSantis. Yes. Every time he was asked to speak, you could tell that he was reading straight off something that he had memorized. Yes. So this is so perfect. My interpretation was, it's like his mom wrote all the index cards of all the things he needed to say, 
but he dropped them and he didn't know the order in which he had to say them, but he knew he had to say all the cards. Yes. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I, I did feel that way about everyone at some point in the debate, more yes. or less. It mostly like near the end, there was a question about education. I think it was to, to Bergam. Mm-hmm. Um, bigger picture. There were eight people in this debate. Two of them didn't matter. One was Bergam. One was Asa Hutchinson. <laughs> um, and afterwards they, they said they were going into this lightning round and asking, they all asked a question, I think, about Trump. I forget exactly what it was, mm-hmm. but everyone else used their time to talk about education and completely ignored the question. Totally. It was the same type of thing. Like, they, they just didn't care. They were like, I have to get this out there. Yeah. The, I don't think, like, I think Chris Christie didn't do that as much, right? Because Chris agree. Christie went in there with a very direct purpose. He mm-hmm. was like, I'm going to badmouth Trump. And I'm going to show why all these other people up here are spineless in running against Trump because they're not willing to call him out on his bull. Mm, you know what I mean? I, I think mean, that was his mission going in. And I think he accomplished it pretty well. I See, I have a different take on um, Christie because he did badmouth Trump. But I think he specifically took this as an opportunity to do other things. Because I feel like everything he's shown in the media thus far is mm-hmm. his bad-mouthing Trump. Sure. And he's trying to brand his campaign that way. But he is like, okay, now Republican voters are actually listening to me. And he probably figured out very early on that the audience for this specific debate was pretty Trump favorable. Oh, yeah. So I think he leaned more into, I have a lot of experience. He was like... I beat a Democratic incumbent That's in New huge. Jersey. I was governor for two terms in a deep blue state. Yep. Um, he fell back on some of his credentials, which I think was a good idea. Oh, Everyone yeah. knows that Christie's anti-Trump already. Right. He, him going in being like, I am the guy who was able to get things done, even with a Democrat Senate and Democrat House in New Jersey, means that I am the guy to lead a conservative movement post-Trump. Yeah. It's not going to work. Right. I mean, obviously, it's not going to work. But when I looked at um, some of the polls that came after the debate, like talking about who won, Mm -hmm. Ramaswamy topped the list. Right. Ramaswamy Mm -hmm. was number top uh, at the top. It was like 32 (laughs) percent. 32 percent of people thought Ramaswamy won. Mm -hmm. Then you go down and Nikki Haley and Chris Christie tied for second at like 22, 25 percent. Who do you think won? That's a good question. I think. Okay, and not so that this is a question in two facets. I think. Yeah. Who do you think won as far as you as a viewer of the debate? Mm-hmm. Who do you think won as far as appealing to potential Republican voters? I think Nikki Haley won both. Okay. I think Nikki Haley won both. I think Nikki Haley won as far as me as the viewer. Yeah. I think Vivek won as far as appealing to Republican voters. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, that's what a lot of Republican voters are saying. That mm-hmm. Vivek did great. But I want to give some insight into my parents are Republicans. And so then when they watch the debate, I like to call them and talk to them and try to get like their gauge of how the primary is going. Right. Mm. So I call my mom and she's like, I love Nikki Haley and Bo Burgum. And I can't believe that somebody on this planet likes Bo Burgum. <laughs> yeah. His name is Doug. His na- <laughs> unless unless his, his name, nickname is Bo. No, his name is Doug. <laughs> I was thinking of Bo Burnham. <laughs> yes, you were. So here. <laughs> to, to talk about how forgettable this guy was his name was doug burgum no his name is doug burgum yeah and uh he was the governor of north dakota as you were just talking about my mm-hmm. mom liked him a lot and then she said i love nikki haley nikki haley was great nikki haley was strong nikki haley was knowledgeable um and then i talked to my dad who's way more pro-trump and he said he's like i think all republicans need to get into a room 
and come to the understanding that Trump is just too unpopular to ever win again, nominate Nikki Haley, and win with her. Wow. And yes, so that coming from my dad, who's a big-time Trump supporter, now saying, I am actually open and kind of want a Nikki Haley who I think could beat Biden. Like He is now prioritizing electability over someone who I guess is like his preferred candidate. That's really interesting. That Yeah, it's super interesting. And yeah. it makes me nervous because I think Nikki Haley— more Republicans do that. Yeah, because I think Nikki Haley is a very strong contender against Joe Biden. Mm. And Joe Biden's internal memos even say like Nikki Haley is the one we're afraid of. Really? Yeah, they're really scared of her. Okay. And they should be. I think Nikki Haley is scary. Yeah. And one more thing I want to say about Nikki Haley. She comes off as like this fairly moderate person. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's almost like she's not actually mm-hmm. like she's actually on Social Security. She is the most radical person on that stage. She's yeah. the only one that has come out actively and said, I want to raise the retirement age yep. for all people under 50 from 65 to 67. She's the only person out there talking about it. And I think she's flexible even on that 67 number. I think she's completely willing to push it higher. Oh, she's totally willing to go up to 70. Yeah. And what's interesting is she says, like, we need to take into account, um, you know, life expectancy. Life expectancy, expectancy in the United States has dropped the last two years. Mm-hmm. And now you want to raise our retirement age? That's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's what she's pushing. So from a, like, a, her perception comes off as moderate. But her actual policy proposals are anything but. Yeah. I, I, it's funny because I think that's true in some ways on foreign policy. See, it's f- so funny because to me, foreign policy just feels like a right or wrong thing more than a left or right thing. And on this stage, you, you had a clear divide over Ukraine, yeah. which was pretty much Vivek versus the field. Um, and Vivek said that he thinks that we should not give any more aid to Ukraine that we should freeze the lines where they are right now and give Russia whatever amount of Ukraine that they've invaded so far. Everyone else says, no, we have to take this stand. We need to keep providing support to Ukraine. Um, so she's she's good there. I think one interesting point that she made with relation to China was the connection between our clean energy revolution and mm-hmm. how it subsidizes, quote unquote, China. Um there were occasional points, like actual policy points made in this debate that I thought were kind of interesting. Yeah. And I think that one definitely has weight. I would I would say it is true. Yeah. Like unequivocally, China has much more capacity than any other country in the world to produce solar cells and other green tech that countries need, including the US, to make this shift from fossil fuels. Um and I I just wanted to call out for a moment because Though I agree with it, I think it's completely missing... What's happening right now. Yeah. Well, it's it's missing the point that it, it's... That climate change is a much bigger deal. Okay, yeah. Then, like, it's it's more important for us to combat climate change than worry about giving a little bit more money to China. And that's why I think Biden's policy of being very specific and restricting high-tech exports to China is the right way to go. Yeah, I mean, look, when the... Republicans on the stage were asked about climate change. I think this was a pivotal moment for the Republican Party because on the a young Republican, 18, 19 years old, was brought on screen and was able to ask a question. This was the only only audience-driven question of the entire debate. A 19-year-old asks, everyone in my generation is scared of climate change. 
what is the Republican Party going to do about it? And all of them pretty much say nothing. I think I really want to be specific about what happens. Okay. Because they ask the Republican candidates to raise their hand if they believe in human-caused climate change. Yes. And before any of them can, DeSantis says, we're not in the classroom. We don't, why don't, let's have a discussion like adults. And to me, that just screamed, he, there was a memo to him early in, like before this debate, that he could not be pinned down on this. Like Mm. that he could not be seen taking a hard stance on whether climate change is caused by humans or not. So because of that, none of them actually were forced to say whether they believe in human-caused climate change. Yes. None of them did say that they believed in human-caused climate change after that. But they were not held to the feet to the fire to raise their hand because DeSantis basically bailed everybody out by interrupting the process. Mm -hmm. And then Vivek comes out and he says the entire climate change agenda is a total hoax. Yes. And the entire auditorium of the debate room just... It does two things because initially the first thing Vivek says is he says everyone on the stage is bought and paid for. And then the whole crowd starts booing, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone starts booing. And then he says, the climate change agenda is a hoax. But the boos from that first statement are carrying over. Mm-hmm. Because believe it or not, some these people still like DeSantis. They don't think DeSantis is a sellout. And they don't like the fact that Vivek is calling him a sellout. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people online talk about how that moment is the audience booing Vivek for not believing in climate change, but that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. Mm-mm. Everyone in that room was in agreement that human-caused climate change is not a problem. Mm-hmm. And, that, I mean, that's a pivotal moment. Like, yeah. what are you telling the next generation? This 19-year-old came in. He's like, I'm scared. My classmates are scared. We see the effects of climate change, and we know that our lives are going to be different and harder because of what's happening. What are you going to do about it? And they said nothing. Well, the thing with Vivek is interesting because to me, it was another example of him really knowing the audience. Because Vivek, I mean, I've watched several of his interviews. He's on every podcast all the time. Literally, this man probably does seven hours of interviews every day. He was on two Sunday shows this morning. He was on Meet the Press and the CNN Sunday Show. I don't yeah. know how he does it. Uh, he, I mean, I, I think he just sits in a truck probably and yeah, puts <laughs> up a green screen. But <clears throat> on many of these, he has publicly acknowledged that climate change is real and that it is caused by humans which is why he was very specific in saying the climate change agenda, agenda. is a hoax what a, and as oh. i saw it i was like oh, of course um but he i i will say we we've talked about climate change briefly on this show and it it is a point that i think at least is worth thinking about how far gone we are with climate change. And when you hear Vivek get more into specifics about why he thinks how he does, it does kind of sound like what he's saying is we have a much better, like what he says, there's a much better chance of us using fossil fuels to adapt to our changing climate Mm -hmm. rather than stopping their use and trying to reverse climate change. So I guess first I'm curious how you would respond to that because I think there's there is some validity at least to the assumptions in, under that point. I don't even I don't think that that's true. I think if if every if every nation does not work to hit net zero mm-hmm. and work to cap their carbon emissions and reduce them as much as possible, right? If every nation doesn't work to accomplish that, 
the effects of climate change just get worse and worse and worse. And then they start tumbling and the effects get exponentially worse the deeper we go into this. Mm. So I don't think we're going to be able to outpace and adapt past the effects of climate change because there's a huge difference, as we've talked about, between 2 degrees Celsius and 2.5 degrees Celsius. If we get up to 4 degrees Celsius, there's nothing we can adapt out of that. Yeah. That's the entire Middle East uninhabitable period. End of story. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that? Yeah. So I don't agree with his framing. I, I saw an interview with him on CNN after the debate, and he said that if he's like, less people have died from climate change disasters than dying of the cold or, or, dying, mm-hmm. yeah, or dying because of the cold. So we should just have more fossil fuels to heat more homes because it's more of a... That's missing the entire point. Mm-hmm. We're not even in the... Be- we're, not, we're barely in the beginning prologue yeah. of the climate change effects. You know what I mean? Totally. So totally. Yeah. The the whole point is supposed to be not to get to 1.5 degrees Celsius past pre pre-industrial levels. We are around 1.1. Models say that we reach a tipping point for our global system after we hit 1.5, where we might go into something like that's where the polar ice caps melt. And then, we when, just, and then we start just gaining heat rapidly after yeah, that. Exactly. Like, we, we don't even know. Like, we can't even model it because we've never had an Earth like that. Um, so I think you're right. I understand the concerns that were, like, and, and I, I was having this. I texted you somewhat recently that I was having a really, like, climate catastrophic day. Um, and I was just listening to stuff. And, and really, if you listen to stuff, even on the left, it's it's, like, measure after measure goal after goal we're way behind what we should be doing yeah like to to make a dent in the amount of fossil fuels that we're burning we need to be building we need to be building like the amount of clean energy facilities that were built in half a year in the second half of 2022 like every day for the rest of the next 20 years um and i don't know i guess i just i understand the enormity of the task, but there can be no more important task to take on. Yeah, I mean, the, the important tasks are always hard. And there needs to be, uh, I mean, we've talked about this all the time, but there needs to be a general mobilization of the entire American and global economy geared towards reducing the effects of climate change and stopping the, the stopping the climb of temperature as much as possible. Yeah. Um, you know, Obama gave an interview a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago, where he was like, we need to, you know, talk about we might hit two degrees Celsius. And we need to even understand that just because we hit 2% doesn't mean that we can become complacent to hit 2.5 because 2.5 is way worse than two degrees Celsius. Yes. Now, when I watched the interview, I was initially mad at him because I'm like, I don't even want to get to 1.5 degrees Celsius. You're already pushing it over to 2%. You know what I mean? Like you said percent twice now, two oh, degrees, two degrees. It's like, I don't even want to get to 1.5 degrees, and now you're already pushing the goalpost to two? Yeah. It's like, you were in charge for eight years, you know? It's like, it's it's a disconnect of his responsibilities. Yeah, I totally hear you, but I guess the the reason it makes sense is because of this kind of rhetoric on the Republican side. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what can you do when half the country doesn't believe in it, right? Mm -hmm. What can you genuinely do? It's not even just, I think it's it's less than half the country, because I'm not convinced that Republican voters... All of them. I, I'm convinced that there is at least 20, 15 percent of Republican voters who understand that there's human caused climate change. Oh, yeah. You the know que- what I, mean? I, I think it's more than that. I, I think so. the question is whether they think we should do anything about it. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. But so back to the debate, because yes. we're on a massive tangent here. 
which I still enjoy. Right. Of course. That's the whole that's the whole show. Yeah. Um but Nikki Haley's rise is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Asa Hutchinson, irrelevant. DeSantis, a clown. Yeah. Mike Pence. I actually left that debate with a greater amount of respect for him than I thought I was going to. I agree. I think he performed quite well. I would say he was probably the third best after Vivek and Haley. Hmm. You want to give that to Christy? Um, I guess it's close. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a toss up between the two of them. Because when Mike Pence talked about January 6th, which is the next thing that we need to talk about at this debate here, when he talked about his role on January 6th, I was honestly like kind of like there was like a sense of a little bit of patriotism coming out of that where I was like, yeah, you did defend the Constitution. You know, and I was like, I'm glad you did that. Yeah. I hate Pence for pretty much everything. But for that one thing, you know, it's like, good. I'm glad you did that. Totally. You know what I mean? And it was yeah. it was nice hearing him defend himself in the face of an audience that was booing him. Yeah. And in the face of other people on the stage who really hated him. And Vivek is a prime example that Vivek was going in on. I think Vivek was the only one, right? I think everyone else who was prompted said that he did the right thing. Christie was a little eh. Because, no, no, no. No, no, Because Christie criticized Pence. Because Pence wouldn't totally say that he wouldn't vote for Trump. Yes, but so then Christie is like getting but, mad at you. You're like, why didn't? Why would you say he's a threat to the Constitution and then vote for him again? Sure, but Christie did say you absolutely did the right thing. Yes. Oh yeah, of course on that angle. Yes. Yeah. So like, yeah, Vivek was attacking him from one side. Christie was attacking him from another. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by that. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I mean, Pence. Pence sounded leader-like. He did. Right. Like very composed. Very stoic. Very poised. Yeah, you can see why they would like, like you, you could see why he would be liked, but I can't think about someone who is more of a contrast from Trump. Oh yeah, he's the total opposite of a human being. I mean, Trump yeah. is bombastic, loud, inconsistent. Politically um, incorrect. Politically incorrect. Yeah. Pence is calm, stoic consistent mm-hmm. um kind of it looks humble right uh the opposite of a human being mm-hmm. uh and i i can't believe that that I, I to be on a fly on the wall on the conversations in that administration must have been so funny well i i assume trump didn't take any yeah trump probably i, I can't imagine trump even talked to the guy very frequently no have you seen veep on hbo no ever? i haven't seen veep um well I- <laughs> you're such a lib <laughs> veep is veep is nonpartisan. that is not true veep is totally nonpartisan. no it is not yes it is go all of the memes about veep online because watching veep is a meme i'm sure yeah but i mean but but because the point of veep is to be making fun of political incompetence but just like the memes come from because that because republicans happen to be more politically incompetent although i would expect that there's been a lot of kamala harris veep memes oh probably yeah yeah so um i just bring it up because she like she's never in the room with the president like right. like the president makes an appearance once a season maybe <laughs> that's how i imagine pence was yeah um and then i want to talk about well let's talk about the abortion thing right because sure. abortion was a very very interesting part of this debate mm-hmm. and nikki haley i think answered the question perfectly when, she's, when they're asked, are you going to do an abortion ban on the national level? Nikki Haley says, it's not even possible. We don't have the 60 Senate votes to do it. Um, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's not worth talking about. And Mike Pence on the other end of the spectrum is like, I am pro-life. I'm the most pro-life congressman, whatever. I will push for you know, a 
a, a national ban. But the, that was very notable to me is that Pence and DeSantis were very unspecific. Like they, they, right, they didn't give the time frame. They didn't give anything. They were just like, I will be the most pro-life president ever. Well, Pence did say, I will impose a national standard maximum. Yeah. Right? What that weak number is, we don't know. No, he said, he said, um, once the baby can start feeling pain. Right. So I specifically looked that up. Oh, good. Like 24 weeks, right? Wait, really? Yeah. Which is completely... Isn't that the standard of Roe? Reasonable. That's yeah. That's the Roe standard. Exactly. It's completely reasonable. They're they're literally lying and saying, like, Democrats are pushing for legal abortion up till the time of birth. And I, I looked at these, these stats, like... There are almost no abortions that happen past no. 24 weeks. And if there are, it is almost always because there's a threat to the life of the mother. Yeah. Yeah. A, a direct threat to the life of the mother is the only reason you have like a late term abortion. Otherwise, they don't happen. Yes. Yeah, so they're, ju they're just making up yeah. an argument on the Democrat side because they want to make themselves seem more righteous. I'm shocked. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Exactly. But, but Nikki Haley's and Pence's argument over this pence is like you're not being pro-life enough and nikki haley is so politically tactful by saying i'm not even going to touch the issue because it's not going to happen no matter what because we don't have the senate votes but she also did allude to a more pro-choice government stance i would say like yeah, or she did legislative stance and that's smart. she was like i am unapologetically pro-life but she was like i'm not i don't really feel comfortable having the government say anything about what happens to a woman's body yep. And then right after this debate, Joe Biden puts out an ad, a one minute ad talking about abortion. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, quotes Trump. Trump says, I'm the guy who got Roe v. Wade overturned, goes after DeSantis, passing the six week ban, goes after Tim Scott. I, we didn't even talk about Tim Scott yet. No, it doesn't matter, I guess. Tim Scott. I he, do want to talk about him. But OK, Tim ahead. Scott uh, saying that he will be the most pro-life president ever. Nikki Haley isn't in that one minute ad. Because she has been very politically tactful mm -hmm. as to not really touch that third rail that will burn her. Yeah. And that's super smart because Democrats are going to run on abortion. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. So, yeah. So, Scott was specific at saying a 15-week federal ban. Mm -hmm. um, we can talk about Scott briefly for the rest of the debate. Um, I thought it was really bad. Really bad. Really bad. Shockingly I, bad. Like, stilted. Um, like DeSantis, it kind of seemed like everything was written for him uh uncomfortable uh i'm trying to think of more adjectives uncomfortable is the good one yeah he really looked just scared yes right he looked scared yeah um i wish do you have anything else to say about tim scott because i honestly don't. uncharismatic is the last adjective i would use yeah he's very uncharismatic um i was shocked that people attacked vivek so much mm -hmm. i was thinking that they were going to go after desantis yeah. desantis has the most amount of people to pull from Right? True. But they decided to go after Vivek. Yeah. And I thought that was so interesting. No, no one touched DeSantis. Well, it's funny. We talked about this, like we texted about this. I think Vivek has a much better chance than DeSantis to take the nomination. He's better betting odds right now to yeah. win the presidency. I think anyone who's intelligent can kind of see the writing on. I mean, we've talked about this for weeks, right? DeSantis is going nowhere. He's obviously a nothing burger. Yeah. So Vivek is the one who can actually inspire something and maybe get the ball rolling into a real chance at winning this thing. But then what I want to talk about from the opposite side of Vivek, because last time we filmed, we talked about Vivek in a somewhat positive light. I want to talk about him from a negative light. Sure. Because he's a guy who wants to get rid of the Department of Education. 
He wants to get rid of the EPA completely. FBI. He, he wants to get rid of the FBI. He wants to get rid of the ATF, the, re the agency that's dealing with uh, firearm regulation. This is, like, not funny. Mm -mm. The government won't be able to function properly if this guy gets in office, and that's the point. He, he uses this phrase, he wants to destroy the administrative state. That is directly out of Steve Bannon's playbook. And Steve Bannon is a far-right guy, publisher of, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of Breitbart.com, and eliminating the administrative state is his first objective, Steve Bannon's. And Vivek is out there pointing this out directly and taking his talking points and taking his objectives for his own. And imagine getting rid of the FBI, getting rid of the Department of Education. The Department of Education, EPA, ridiculous. So Vivek is going to destroy the administrative state. And the one thing I'd add is that it's scary because it seems like he has the competence to actually execute on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And he, he was on, seeing, uh, he was on uh, Meet the Press this morning. Um, I'm also, I'm not only a nerd who reads The Economist, I'm also a nerd who watches Meet the Press every Sunday morning. <laughs> and he said that there are rules protecting civil servants from getting fired. And there's rules that you can't just fire people in the government. You have to go through somewhat of a process. He's like, well, that doesn't apply to mass layoffs. And that's what I'm going to do. Mass layoffs, not individual firings, mass layoffs. That's what I'm going to bring to government. What a nightmare. That is... I understand really if you guys out there might be anti-government or something or a little bit, okay? And you might be a Republican. You want a small state. These jobs matter a lot. You don't want a guy who's going to completely defund and de-teeth the FDA, yeah. okay? That's not something you want. Whether you know it or not, the reason you're not having diarrhea every day is because the FDA is making sure what we're eating is relatively safe. Yeah, Okay. exactly. So please, God, don't trust him. <laughs> he is scary. All right. Okay. You want to talk more about climate change? Yeah, a little bit. It's crazy that we, it, it's been so long that we recorded that we're just now going to be talking about the Hawaii wildfires. Yeah. Which I don't want to spend a ton of time on. It's been covered so much everywhere. Yeah. The only thing I'll say, so the death toll right now is above 300 people. It's probably going to rise even higher than that. Um, <clears throat> I just want to use it again to talk about how climate change is causing these extreme weather and climate events more and more often these wildfires are an example of that um there's been long-term declining rainfall in hawaii and specifically in maui where where the fires happened um which has also made the vegetation drier um and it's made fire resistant vegetation burn away <clears throat> in more common wildfires so it can then be replaced by dry grasses which were all factors to lead to how rapidly this spread and how it was able to cause so much destruction. Um, not to mention that winds from a hurricane that was passing south of the island um, were kind of what helped start the wildfires. Um, and that was also caused by a combination of climate change factors to make storms happen earlier and more mm -hmm. frequently. And the the El Nino climate pattern that is happening right now. So that's pretty much all I have to say. An example of how climate change is terrible is killing people right now, killed hundreds of people just last week in this single event. Um, and it bears repeating for us to beat the drum of needing to shift away from fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah. Perfectly said. Perfectly said. And now, 
we're going to actually shift to something that's a potential solution to stuff like this. Yeah. Um, you were doing some research on how we can store clean energy because one of the biggest issues with clean energy is how are we going to store it and get it to the places where we need it and access it when we want it. Exactly. Because when this, when we have, you know, solar panels and wind, what happens when it, there's no wind and there's no sun out, right? So yes. here's a solution that we found. Totally. So this is, it's a new development that happened um, in, an, in a lab at MIT where these researchers say they've developed an energy storage system that could allow homes and other infrastructure to store their own power in concrete. So basically the way that this happens um, is they, they can create this system called a supercapacitor um, out of cement, water, and carbon. And so there's this material called black carbon that when it's mixed with concrete and water the concrete and water mix really well together but the black carbon does not so instead it kind of forms this this web throughout the the solution um and these this web the branches of this web provide the pathways to store energy within the concrete what's so cool about this is because cement is the main component this energy storage system could be incorporated into buildings and roads right and so for roads this is awesome because cars could be charged electric vehicles could be charged as they drive along roads that sounds so futuristic that, yeah that sounds insane it's amazing this is this is the type of stuff that's like okay if we can get this onto the market soon maybe this can cause the exponential increases mm -hmm. in renewable energy usage that we really need um the this could also work for for houses right so if you have a house built on a clean energy grid um, or you have a, a network of houses maybe built on it. You're worried about not being able to power those houses when there is no wind blowing, when there is no sunshine. And there's a big snowstorm. Exactly. But if the foundations of these houses are batteries in and of themselves that can charge up more in times when there is more sun and more wind. Yeah then you have your intermittent energy solution. Which is just amazing. Yeah. And so the, the researchers mentioned that there was a pr potential problem in that mixing the black carbon into this solution can make the, the cement less structurally sound. Yeah. But even after that, they said they think they found a sweet spot there where 90% cement and 10%, I've been saying black carbon, is carbon black. 10% carbon black maintains the strength of the cement and allows the supercapacitor to hold a large amount of energy. That's huge. So right now it's still supposed to be years from municipal or commercial use, but it's really exciting. Right, and that's one of the, it, again, we've talked about this. We we are at the point of climate change of the climate change fight where we got to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Right. Totally. Another thing that I've read that's similar to this, I don't know all the science the way you did about this solution, but using sand, large, large cylinders of sand as batteries and storing the kinetic energy in the sand. Wow. And then, you know, as the same principle, no heat, um, no sun, no wind charged from the foundation, no, no heat, no sun, no wind gets charged from your sand generator that's been storing all of this kinetic energy. That's so cool. Right? Yeah. And that I've seen on some working prototypes of. Okay. Yes. So that that's like, I think that's more possible and more in the near future. 
Okay. Which is good. And this is why legislation like the IRA, the Infrastructure no, the Inflation, Inflation Reduction, Reduction Act, Act, is is so important because it allocates a lot of money not only for projects to build out clean energy infrastructure, but also to fund research like yes, this. Yes, and the research is what's going to save us. Exactly. The research is how you get, again, the exponential gains mm -hmm. rather than just the linear incremental ones. And I'm not going to sit here and say that we don't see exponential gains in renewables because we currently do, yeah. especially in states like Texas. Texas is now 50% renewable, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the, the renewable increases in those types of states in the Midwest are going to go through the roof. Yes. The renewable increases over time will be exponential. Yeah. But the, the cost... Um, kind of the cost benefit ratio yeah, yeah, yeah. only research and yep. new science Can will figure be able out. to yeah increase that beautiful so that's okay. exciting let's move away from the climate change stuff mm -hmm. and uh get into some a little bit of doom and gloom and sadness but something that we need to be spreading awareness about i want to talk about a story um that took place uh with some police officers and police brutality um michael jenkins and eddie parker lived in a house um, when uh, a woman who was their neighbor called the police and thought that these two men were breaking into the home. When the police came, they kicked down the door without a warrant, um, and they proceeded to do some awful, inhumane things to these two men that is unbelievable to even comprehend. Um, but this is what they did. Um, all the six men have pled guilty to this. They illegally entered the home, handcuffed both of the men, kicked them, waterboarded them, tased them, attempt to sexually assault them for nearly two hours, um, and eventually one deputy put a gun in Jenkins' mouth, shot him, lacerating his tongue and breaking his jaw, all while repeatedly using racial slurs throughout the violent acts. Um, and the defendants were adamant that these cops are motivated uh, on the basis of race. And all of this was captured on surveillance cameras that watched basically all of this go down. Um, and after all of this happened, the cops took the hard drive of the surveillance footage where they thought it was all stored, drove it miles away, and then threw that hard drive in a river thinking that they got rid of all the evidence, then planted a gun or a BB gun on one of the victims and tried to stage it that they tried to attack the police officers first. That's the America we live in. And these men are just now getting justice. Um, it, it, Unspeakably the, insane. The guys were handcuffed chairs while the police threw eggs at them and poured grease on their heads. This was just for fun. These guys were sadistic. How long have they been on the job? Is this the first time they've done this? These guys had a name for themselves. They called this little gang of cops. These six guys called themselves the goon squad. Mm -hmm. Is this the first time they've done this? Who knows? Who knows how many times they've done this? And the sheriff has taken no responsibility for it. And the sheriff is running for reelection. And he's unopposed. He's going to be the sheriff again come November if mm -hmm. someone else doesn't decide to run against him. Um... How long has the sheriff known about this type of behavior? He says he doesn't know. Are we going to believe that after people under him handcuffs people to a chair, mm. puts a gun in someone's mouth, and shoots his tongue off, breaking his jaw? You know, anyone who says that racism is gone in America can, I don't know, 
you're wrong, dude. You're wrong. This happens too frequently. Um, thankfully, these men will get justice and these people won't be cops anymore. But this is a systemic problem because this happens everywhere. I, that's where I would want to zero in here. Because obviously the story is... I. So I talked to Anthony when he first told sent me this story. And I was... I was iffy about covering on the podcast because it is so sensational. Um, obviously, story worthy and makes a point about the continued existence of racism. But I, I do wonder, like, is there anything we can do here? Because we talk about systemic racism, and I think there are many solutions that um, not only have been proposed, but are implemented specifically in a lot of um, bluer states and mm -hmm. communities this even though it's part of a systemic problem this is a very specific bunch but where were their body cameras where were their body cameras we're not going to get rid of the sheriff for this mm. the sheriff is going to hold on to his power and there's going to be no reform to the police system after this so what okay so you're, you're saying right, what can the you do about this? Those are two things you could do in response could, to this. But you're saying no change to the police system. I think you're right about having body cameras. And I I don't know what the state of requiring body cameras across the U.S. is. Yeah, it's not. I, I agree that that should be codified. Um, I think the sheriff could resign. But my, my point is like the sheriff could resign and someone just as bad or... The sheriff could be telling the truth that he didn't know about this, and the sheriff could be a totally fine person. So my question is, are there systemic changes? Are there changes to how the police should be run, like to the rules? Because the thing is, the rules obviously don't allow for this. There's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people breaking the rules. Right. Can we actually make changes that mean that people break the, the rules like this less often? I think the only way to do that is to de I think the only way to do that is to demilitarize aspects of our police department, limit their availability to guns for certain calls. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, I think that there needs to be a different type of de-escalation training that we don't have in the United States that you do see in other European countries that don't have similar police brutality issues. Um, I think that's to name a few. And I, you know, there is a, there's a lot to be said about how we go about detransitioning the police force for certain calls now and replace it with social work. Mm. Okay. Now this is not one of those cases. They were called for a home invasion. The police are supposed to respond to a home invasion. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the only thing I could think of is that there needs to be more oversight like this. I'm not going to allow this to become a part of the police force that we just have to deal with. Right. There, 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 there needs to be, but of a, course that's the right thing to say. But what does it mean? Well, it means that you have to put body cameras on them. You have, you have to have to body more, cameras on. You have to. Leadership has to be punished for things like this. Mm. When you, when, when things go wrong in a, an organization, the first person that gets blamed is management. Sure, management is the first one that gets blamed, mm -hmm. as it should be, because it's their job to make sure everything's operating effectively. If the sheriff's not then they need to be taken out of office. They need to be impeached. They need to be voted out or something, mm. right? So I, I just, I don't agree. There needs to be, you know, a ton of it, difference, a, a, a total different operating model. And is this a systemic issue? Well, the systemic issues 
come in to play when you have a police force that is primed to directly target communities of color. And so when they get into a position where they have the opportunity to abuse a person of color, they are feeling that they are protected and righteous and justified in doing so, mm -hmm. right? Um, how does that change? The things I've already said, but... Do you think it would be wise to have different levels of punishment for police officers who make transgressions like this if the based on the victim's race? No. You, like, you don't think it would help to make them be no. punished worse no i don't think so i don't think okay. that's necessary i don't think that's a step we got to take okay i think another thing i want to do depower police unions police unions have so much power in this country and mm. police unions overly protect bad cops in such a way that it's dangerous to the public mm. um this is one of the only areas where police are the only people in the world who can point a gun at you and have it be legal right yeah. the police unions having so much power in protecting those people um, is totally against your interest as a citizen. And they need to be, you know, getting rid of protected, uh, protected immunity for things like that um, and protected pensions or the way that they're punished for taking off for a number of years or whatever before they're allowed to come back. See, I will say this is interesting to think about because I think you're right that those, the protections of unions are happens to be too empowering for bad police officers what if i what if i shift over and think about something like teachers unions mm -hmm. obviously bad teachers don't have the same negative effects on people as bad cops yeah but i think the principle as far as the bad teachers being overprotected by unions and pensions really could still hold and i don't think that's true i have never seen a study that shows that teachers unions negatively impact students. I have only seen studies that show strong teachers unions positively impact student performance. Okay. So pol police unions do not have the same relationship. Strong police unions are directly correlated to a negative interaction with the public. I teachers see. unions are correlated with a higher um, benefit to the public. Okay. And they don't have that same relationship. That makes sense. If they did have the same relationship, we'd be having a different conversation. Sure. Um, you know, Interesting. but I, that needs to change for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, just another terrible, sad story of racism in America. And, you know, this really rings hard when we have our chief justice, John Roberts, um, in one of his most recent opinions, say that we are in a different time in America and we need different solutions because racism is basically a thing in the past. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Always good to talk about it. Always mm -hmm. good to bring it up because it's important. Um, I think one of the things that we first talked about on this show was actually our first topic was housing. I, well, do you want to talk about this this man who shot store no, owner? I want to save that for the last before we go into the. Well, I feel like it fits media. very well with what we just talked about. All right, let's do it. Doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, oh, okay. Yeah, you see what I mean, though? Yeah, I see what you mean, right. but, but we're there now. We're there now. Yeah. Okay. So, a woman named Laura Ann Carlton, she'd like to be known as Lori, she was 66 years old, was shot by a man, uh, I don't really want to say his name, he was 27, and he was, after 
uh, yelling homophobic slurs because the store presented uh, a pride flag out front. Now, Lori was not gay, but she was an ally. And so she would leave a pride flag outside of her store. She was a fashion designer. Uh, it was stolen a lot. A lot of times she would go into work and the flag was gone. So every time it was, she would replace it with a bigger flag. Eventually, she had a flag that was, I think, the size of your standard American flag out in front of her store, which is just so badass, right? Yeah. What a better way to say F you to all those hateful bigots out there to just increase the size of the flag every time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this guy in San Bernardino uh, had enough of it. Uh, he got into a screaming match with her and in response decided to shoot her for her support of the LGBT community. Uh, who was this guy? Again, not going to say his name, but I think it's important to understand what motivated a guy like this to care so much about a flag outside of someone's store. Online, he was on a lot of anti-LGBTQ message boards. He was a big fan of the commentator Matt Walsh, who we'll be talking about later. Uh, His pinned tweet uh, that he had, that he posted in June, was what to do with the LGBTQ flag, uh, and it was on fire and burning. This is the type of guy we're dealing with. Another one of his posts on Gab that was pinned was, we need to stop compromising on the LGBT dictatorship and not let them take our lives. He wrote, stop accepting this abomination that the government is forcing us to submit to these mentally distorted tyrants. He also followed Trump, Jordan B. Peterson, and uh, Matt Walsh, and I think Michael Knowles as well. This is a part of a larger rise of right-wing violence that is becoming all too common and all too frequent because we have a media that has run wild and has turned people to hatred for political gain. That's what's happened here. We have people who are hungry for power, Trump. We have people who are hungry for views, Matt Walsh. We have people who are now putting others at risk in their path for power Mm -hmm. because they're inspiring this stochastic terrorism, this random terrorism. Trump himself isn't a terrorist. Well, Trump might be. Eh, With the January 6th stuff, I don't know about that. Matt Walsh himself isn't a terrorist, right? But he's inspired at least one now. At least one. This is the one I know about. There might be another one out there that happened a few months ago or something. This is the only one I know about. He's inspired one terrorist or one hateful bigot to kill somebody else um, for the sake of a what? For the sake of a piece of cloth outside of a building? Because he believed that groomers were somehow taking over the country and forcibly transitioning children? You know, uh, these people's mind have been poisoned. And the right-wing media has actually done such a disservice the LGBTQ movement over the past two years, even more than normal, if you can believe it or not, because the acceptance of gay marriage has declined this year for the first time since like the 80s or the 90s or something like that. So long. We've seen a massive drop among Republican support for gay marriage. And this brings up another point that I want to get into. The fight for trans rights is not just a fight for trans rights. It's a fight for all alienated and marginalized people's rights because the second they win on one they're going to come for the next one as much as they can roll back the clock they're gonna the second they take out the take out the t they're coming for the b and then when they then after that they'll go for the g and then the l you know what i mean Mm -hmm. they'll never stop until it's all gone and everyone else everyone has to go back in the closet um like many of them probably are yeah (laughs) my mind 
first went to First Amendment type talks because this is where First Amendment rights get tricky. Mm -hmm. You're right. Trump probably isn't a terrorist. Jordan Peterson definitely isn't a terrorist. Matt Walsh definitely isn't a terrorist. So what do we do about these people who, within their rights, spew rhetoric that inspires other people to commit acts of terrorism? God, that is so hard. It isn't is. It? It's almost impossible. I would say. Um, you would hope these people take responsibility for what they say, but I, again, they have motivation to not do so. Um, and I, hmm. I don't have an answer. I'm I'm terrified of of restricting speech rights in any way. Um, I hmm. it is it's it's strange because it, it reminds me of this this narrative that's really taken hold in in Europe, especially France. This idea of like the great replacement. Oh yeah, it's huge in the United States. That inspired at least two shootings that I know of off the top of my head right now. Yeah, and so it's it's not it's the idea that that immigrants, basically brown immigrants, almost all the time, are going to come in and replace the the native white population as the dominant populace, and then thus the the whites are going to to lose power. And I just feel the exact same way here, especially with this tweet saying we need to stop compromising on this LGBT dictatorship and yeah. not let them take over their our lives. And like, dude, you don't have to be gay. I don't understand where that's even coming from. But no, and and. It's not even a great replacement with immigrants, right? Just like it's not a replacement with gay people. It's not about elevating them over everyone else. It's just about elevating them to the level that everyone else already was at. Right. If there's a dog in a room and then you put a cat in the room, is there only a cat in the room now? No, there's a dog and a cat in the room. It's not a replacement. It's an addition. Exactly. But then this is where the great replacement, great replacement, they do get, white people do get replaced. What if you don't believe in interracial marriage? What if interracial marriage destroys the pure blood of whiteness, right? That's what they're really afraid of. They're afraid of in a mixed country with mm. people of color and white people, there'll be more interracial marriages and then white people will be gone. That's what they're afraid of. This, this is all about rolling back the clock as much as they can. This is this is where I, like I can't I haven't seen enough to completely buy in. I can I can see it making sense. Yes. But Matt Walsh is the type of guy to say stick to your tribe and has said on podcasts okay. to be very, yeah. So he yeah. is not, they're not, they're not messing around here. They know what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can get that. But now in Brazil, this is only a few days ago. This isn't on our, on our um, current events topic, but Brazil has made homophobic slurs punishable by prison. Wow. Supreme Court of Brazil has ruled that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess like. Like there are limits to speech in the U.S. as well. You can't yell fire in a crowd at the obviously. So the point behind that line is so your speech isn't used to hurt and potentially kill other people. And that's what's happening here. The problem is like certain words, right? I think I, I don't know if you can ban. Like, sure, you could ban gay slurs, mm -hmm. but I think other language will just rise up 
in its its wake. I think where my mind is getting to now is like, what is the real? Why does this resonate so much? Yeah. Right. And I I don't know. Like I'm I'm trying to think about it. Besides discontent, people want something to blame. Maybe this like this will kind of get into in our discussion in our deep dive discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh. But the only real solution is changing the conditions that we have in this country and this population. Right. That's the only thing I can think of, right? Like what else could make somebody so hateful of another person other than them being discontent with their life? Mm-hmm. We're in a different generation. We're young guys, okay? We, are, we were born into an age of acceptance and we're happy for it. Mm-hmm. We can't comprehend an ideology of hatred because... It's just not us. It's not the people we've been around. It's not our age group. We're just not. No. And I, so this is something that I thought about too. I, to me, it feels so American to be inclusive. Right. The entire American ideology is about inviting, growing together, freedom, liberty, escaping to a promised land. Yes, exactly. And yet the 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 party that more identifies itself with patriotism and defense of that identity is the one that is trying to outcast more and more people. No, the conser- the, the right-wing racist movement that claims to be patriots are pissing on the ideas that made America what it is and what makes America different from every other place in the world. Yeah. Every other nation is defined by its people. America is our is in a unique place in the world by being defined by our ideals and our common values. Totally. That makes us very unique. Yeah. It's, I I want, I want a Democrat. I mean, I I want these values articulated in this way is what should make us proud to be Americans is our inclusivity and our acceptance, our acceptance of ourselves and our acceptance of everyone else. Yeah. That is what brings people together and makes us stronger. Division is what makes us weak. Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, when you look at, yeah, yeah, of course. So, and then on top of all this, this week, a guy who wrote a racist manifesto goes out and he shoots three black people in Jacksonville with the expressed purpose of killing black people. Um, You know, I, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And there needs to be some type of accountability that the right has to feel for this for these types of moments because without them it wouldn't be happening without them expressing these views and pushing this line it would not be happening the way it is yeah totally all right now let's switch on to some positive stuff we we started off the podcast talking about housing and we talked about what was going on in Minneapolis as they eliminated single family zoning across the entire uh metropolitan metropolitan area. area And so now we are starting to see the effects and the effects are banging. Yeah. The effects are banging. <laughs> They're banging. <laughs> okay. In May, the Twin Cities became the first major metropolitan area to see annual inflation fall below the 2% target, falling to 1.8%. They eliminated, and how did they accomplish this? They eliminated zoning that allowed for only single family homes. And since 2018, they have invested $320 million for rental assistance and subsidies. That's what you want to see. Get people in homes, keep them in homes, and make it as easy as possible for homes to be built. And multifamily housing is key. Mm -hmm. Okay? So this is something that the mayor said. I can't tell you 
how many people were like, oh, look at this supply, look at all these just brand new buildings, and kind of scoffing at it as if it was going to lead to some type of gentrification or rent skyrocketing. And this is the mayor talking. The exact opposite has happened. It's so funny when I read that. I don't understand how someone could think that. Uh, I also <laughs> don't understand how someone could think <laughs> oh, that. Oh, look at all the supply. Look at all these brand new buildings. It's going gonna, it's gonna to mean rent skyrocketing. <laughs> like, like, where do you even get that information from, dude? How could eliminating single-family zoning possibly lead to gentrification? It is the entire cause of gentrification. Exactly. And so Minneapolis has now seen the lowest rent rise in the entire United States. The United States overall, between 2017 and 2023, has seen a 31% increase in their rents. Let's get a little lower. New Rochelle, New York, 7%. Tyson's, Virginia, 4%. Portland, Oregon, 2%. Portland, Oregon. That's another one that dealt with zoning. Mm-hmm. Minneapolis, 1% rent growth between 2017 and 2023. This is a possible future, guys. Mm-hmm. This is this is absolutely within our ability to fight this and bring this down. In in Minneapolis, okay, about... Where, where are we looking here? Okay. Minneapolis metro residents spend lower share of income on rent than any other metropolitan area. Boston is over 60% of people spend about 40% of their income on housing. Yeah. Which, 60%. Yeah, yeah. The Boston, when you look at the graph of this, it's so funny because Minneapolis is at the bottom, but it's only like a little bit less than the very second to last. Boston is like 10 percentage <laughs> points higher than the second most. Which is Chicago. Which yeah. is so funny, right? Ugh. So Minneapolis, oh, down to like 40%. Just a massive, massive success. Mm-hmm. And I think this just goes to all the people in local communities. I've said this many times on the show, but a lot of you guys are new, so you probably don't know this. I'm an elected official in Brookline, and one of the things that we're voting on in the coming months is to eliminate some zoning requirements to build more housing. And I'm going to take this to the legislature, and I'm going to present this, and I'm going to show them what they did in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful that progressives and liberals in Minneapolis fought for this so we can use them as an example to make it happen in Brookline. I wish Brookline could lead and be the example to everybody else because our progressive value should be that way, we should take the leap first if we truly believe it. Mm-hmm. But for this thing, we can point to somewhere else, we can show that it works, and building more housing is good policy. Yeah. I mean, this is the definition of thought leadership. This is how good ideas get implemented and how positive change happens. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't have a ton more to say no, about this. It's just all good. All good stuff from Minneapolis, guys. Keep doing what you're doing. All of Wisconsin, Tim Waltz, Governor of Minnesota, run for president in 2028, please. <laughs> yeah. Tim Waltz, I know you watch, okay? <laughs> Governor, please. Yeah, we got him on speed dial. Yeah. Tim. Tim. Our boy, Timmy. Our boy. Okay. Now, let's talk about the administrative state. Um, uh, Vivek's favorite... Uh, <laughs> Target. Target here. Yeah. And apparently, he's winning without even having to be involved in government. Yeah. So, FINRA, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, FINRA is the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. These guys have powers delegated to them by the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, to enforce and implement the rules that the Security uh, Exchange Commission is uh, for or given to enforce by Congress. So they kind of outsource what they do to FINRA. And FINRA is a private organization, okay? So FINRA tried to expel Alpine Securities, which is a you know standard security firm, from the securities market over allegations that it misused customer funds and violated basic compliance rules. Good job, FINRA. Love to hear that. It's awesome. Well, the Utah-based broker firm, Alpine, uh, sued this, 
And in a DC circuit, uh, Judge Justin Walker ruled in favor of Alpine Securities. And, they qu and he questioned whether FINRA even has the authority to determine Alpine's fate. And he says that they're not a formal member of the executive branch, the way that the SEC or the FDA is. Um, and FINRA aren't government employees. Um, maybe they don't even have the authority to do their job at all, which is just, you know, years of precedent thrown away. Yeah. The entire operating model of the entire exchange market that we're talking about, they're just going to ready to throw it in the garbage and move on. <laughs> um. So who is this guy, Justin Walker? <laughs> Shockingly, he was appointed by Donald Trump, and he was a protege of our favorite frat bro, Justin Brett Kavanaugh. Justice. Yeah. What did I say? Justin. Oh, God. <laughs> dude. I love correcting you on this. I show. don't know. I feel like I, I don't know why I make so many mistakes. Am I just stupid? Like, what is it? <laughs> you're just so on a roll that you're not even thinking about what you're saying. Oh, man, that's not good. They're going to yeah, I'm going to start <laughs> saying gonna get canceled. I'm going to get canceled one day. Oh, God. So now. This isn't just dangerous for FINRA and for the regulatory aspects of the stock market. If this precedent goes through in the next level of courts, because obviously they're appealing, mm -hmm. it would also upend similar powers held by self-regulatory organizations across securities, transportation, energy, healthcare industries. This is dangerous. I mean, we're, we're talking about other securities exchanges like NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange being under threat. Yeah. Um, so again, because I'm am who I am. I read through Justice Walker's just, what did I say? Justin Walker's opinion. I just said justice instead of Justin. Yeah, which you should have said justice. No, but justice. his name is Justin Walker. That's why his name is Justin Walker, right? Yes. Okay. Anyway, point is, um, this is I want to read this section of his opinion. But he's, yeah. What's wrong? He's not a justice. No, but he's, he's not a, a justice. He's only a judge. Oh my God, that's confusing. The judge, justice, Justin. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is a quote from him. FINRA hearing officials are not appointed by a government body pursuant to the appointment clause. Second, they are shielded from removal by the FEC ex except for cause, and the Supreme Court has assumed that the president may not remove SEC commissioners at will um, in one of these cases, okay? That means that there are two layers of removal of protection, one for the commissioners of the SEC and one for the hearing officers in FINRA. That may well infringe on the president's ability to execute the laws by holding his subordinates accountable for their conduct. Uh, this is done. This level of chain of command to make the SEC people hard to fire and to delegate it over to FINRA is to protect these bodies from regulatory capture. Mm -hmm. What's regulatory capture? Regulatory capture is when people of industry get into government and are then appointed to regulatory bodies that are regulating their industry. So imagine a coal baron becoming the head of the EPA and then limiting how the EPA can protect coal or fight against coal, okay? Uh, that's what we're talking about here. So they want to make it as easy as possible for the next conservative right-wing guy to get in there, upend the SEC, and defang the regulatory body that's supposed to be watching out for consumers like us and you watching. Mm-hmm. That's what their goal is here. Um, and it's just another aspect of Vivek Ramaswamy's push to get rid of the administrative state that's been started by Steve Bannon. And if Trump or Vivek or DeSantis get in, that's what they're going to do. Yeah, this one's pretty cut and dry. Clear cut to me. No. Right? Like it, it's just classic Republican aim is to uh, reduce the administrative state 
reduce the size of the executive branch. This is one that could help them do it. We'll see what appeal. We'll says. see what appeal says. You know. Yeah. Um, now we got some positive news. Going over to Joe Biden. We're gonna we're gonna dick Our ride boy. dick ride Uncle Jack. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, he did something good for student loan payments. Um, he passed the save plan or put in place the save plan. I don't mm. know. Um, it's expected to save participants $1,000 a year on average and make sure that low earners will not have to make any payments um, according to the White House. So as of Tuesday, borrowers will not have to make payments if they have an income that is 225% of the federal poverty guidelines or less. That is, if they make less than $32,000 for individuals and $67,000 for a family of four. That covers more than a million borrowers as estimates by the Biden administration, and payments will be suspended on an indefinite basis. Hmm. It's pretty banging. That is pretty good. That's pretty sick. Yeah. That's a really, really great so, step into cancellation. Yeah, as long, basically as long as Biden is in office, no payments have to be made. Right, so it's as long as Biden is in office. As long as a Democrat president is in office, then low-income borrowers will not have to pay back. Once a Republican gets into office, these low-income people will again... Uh, have to pay back their student loans yes so if you are watching and you happen to be in this category i cannot imagine a better reason to vote democrat they are literally saving you so much money yeah if, if you have student loans you have to vote democrat right i mean <laughs> yeah. like, there's literally no incentive for you to vote republican at this point because totally. they're just actively against your entire financial stability. Yeah. Imagine there's so many people living paycheck to paycheck, especially in our age group, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we are not doing great as compared to our parents' generation. Mm-hmm. We're doing worse, right? Um, and this is a debt burden that they didn't have to deal with um, at all because school was basically free for them if they wanted to go mm-hmm. almost. Um, so it's not at all a comparable situation to what our parents were in. No. And we got totally screwed and you, please, God, if you are a young person, there is no incentive to ever vote Republican if you have student loans. Yeah. Um, yes. So he, there's also another addition to this where you we are redu- Biden is reducing the percent of money you have to pay for income-based repayment plans. So under current law in income-based repayment plans, you only have to pay back about 10% of your monthly income into your student loans. Now the Biden administration has lowered that down to 5%. It's a total halving of what you pay for your student loan. Yeah. A massive, massive benefit to the working class. Mm-hmm. Um, just an awe. And that's the type of like tax cut that you'd want to see, right? Yeah. The type of tax cuts we always talk about that we like a lot is putting money in the pockets of people who need more money to spend and who are going to consume it on consumables. Yeah. That is working class people who are trying to make ends meet. That is people who just got out of college who are trying to make their lives, trying to have children. You want to make it as easy for them to start their family. You know? Totally. So, yeah, really fantastic stuff. He's also doing some things with interest rates and not having late payments and interest stack upon interest upon interest. Your interest will only grow based off your principal, which is also really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, after getting shot down with his plan to cancel student loan debt. This is a very, I, I mean, not an equivalent, but a good replacement, like yeah. a good placeholder. And I think it's important for people to recognize that, you know, 
Yeah. I think it's I, I think it's shows that Biden actually cares about fighting on this issue. Totally. I mean, he, he didn't tried capitulate. to do more. He was shot down in the courts and now he's trying whatever is still allowed. Like yeah. what more can you expect? What more can you expect? Yeah. I wish like well, I mean, I'll I'll give what more could you expect? If mm. he really wanted to do this, why couldn't he make all student loan payments indefinite until the next Republican president? If he could do it for low income and mm. then push that up to 225% of the poverty line when it was 150 before him, yeah. why couldn't he just do, you know, well, a million percent above the poverty line? I wonder if there if there's any advantage to having people who can still pay back the loans more easily there to might be continue doing so no there yeah there might be for yeah. the government balance sheet or something right yeah and i wonder if it also means that private student loans are um maybe can can be given out at lower interest rates because maybe there's a little bit less fear that the government will interfere with them being paid back that's a that's an oh I guess that makes sense. I don't know. No, you're just yeah. I'm speculating. Yeah, you're trying to give Biden a little bit of a wiggle room, and I appreciate that. Yeah, but I feel like I don't know. Like if I you want to play hardball, play hardball. Sure, I just think there's okay. So maybe maybe it is just for the political will. Then yeah. I just think usually like when we when we propose something, the the policymakers have thought about it and they have some oh, reason for right right. For like, yeah, it's hard for us to say oh we're smarter than all the people in the executive branch. Right. Yeah. So I understand that. Yeah. They. Yeah. All right. Next thing. Let's move on. Yeah, we got to we gotta get going <laughs> we really here. Gotta we are, our battery only lasts so long. <laughs> okay, next thing we're going to talk about is a Trump proposal that I, I can't believe it we're talking about, to be honest with you. Yeah. You you texted me when I texted you about this. You said that we're going to have an interesting conversation about this. And I'm very interested to in what you have to say. Okay. Um, Trump is proposing a 10% tariff on everything. Mm -hmm. From everything from every country. 10% flat across the board. Mm -hmm. Even countries we have trade agreements with. Nope. 10% tariff across the board. Um, a senior Trump transitional official said Thursday that the team is mulling over a 10% tariff aimed at spurring U.S. manufacturing, which could be implemented via executive action or as a part of a sweeping tax reform package going through Congress. What are your first thoughts about this? Um, going to raise costs for consumers, yeah. raise prices right away. That's my first thought. Yeah, of course. Of course. You're just yeah. going to pay a larger tax when you go to the when you go to the store That's or just it. just a higher price like or just higher price. like the the importers are the ones who are going to pay the higher tax you're going to pay the higher price no. that's what i think no 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 you pay the tax tariffs are paid by the consumer not by the importer really yes oh 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 yeah tariffs are paid by the consumer interesting tariffs are not paid by the importer tariffs okay. are directly paid by the consumer oh why that's how it's always been that's the definition of a tariff okay yeah, so you, you it comes into the country, then you mark it up 10% for, for being a foreign good, and it's sure. to de-incentivize people from purchasing that product on the shelf. Okay. Um, I mean, crazy stuff here, man. And now we've what we've what what's interesting is we've seen Trump do this already. In 2018, mm -hmm. he went into this whole tax war or tariff war with China and everything. But only with China. But only it's with very China. Very different. Right. Yeah. Right. But there was an interesting paper published by the... Uh, uh, Federal Reserve of Dallas mm -hmm. that talked about what were the effects of these tariffs. And this is really interesting stuff because yeah. I think it makes it very clear that, guys, tariffs, especially universal tariffs, are bad for everybody. We find that increase in tariffs by the United States and its trading partners reduce U.S. average welfare by 0.1% with larger losses concentrated among retirees and low-income and low-wealth workers. Mm. 
When we isolate the pure consequence of the tariffs, we find that they lead to a substantial decline in aggregate capital and consumption. However, when we use tariff revenue to reduce taxes, these negative effects are largely offset. Now, that's interesting. So my, my second thought on this was when I believed that the tariffs were levied on the importers, mm -hmm. I thought that maybe there would be a workaround so that you could have the losses not so concentrated on retirees and low-income and low-wealth workers. Mm -hmm. Without that, I'm not so sure. But the reason that I was more open, or at least, yeah, open to the idea, mm -hmm. we talk about on the show, like, again, sometimes it feels weird, like, where the Democrat and Republican lines are getting drawn. True. Because as Democrats, we're, we're supposed to be pro-tax, right. right? Like, we want more government government revenues. Trump specifically said, like, he would use the revenues from tariffs to pay off the debt. We've been talking about how the debt, and I just saw a video recently about how the debt is the largest line item on our budget sheet right now. Yeah, the interest payments on the debt. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for paying for the debt, right? So I, when I was reading more about this, I'm... I'm not completely against. I want a more specific tool so that we can have the this burden not fall on the least fortunate, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I'm open to ideas about increasing the government's revenue so that we can pay down the debt among other pressing concerns yeah. that we need more government revenue to spend. Right. The, the, way to, the way that you got to raise more revenue is not anything that's going to impact growth and not anything that impacts standard of living. Those are the two things that we want to try taxing that we don't impact those two. Do you think that's possible? Yes. It's not idealistic? No. Wealth taxes. You don't think wealth taxes will hurt growth? I do not think wealth taxes will hurt growth at all. I think wealth taxes will help growth. I think the money will be well spent in the hands of the Department of Public Works in towns across this country mm. rather than sitting in the value sitting in an art piece in Jeff Bezos's 13th mansion, right? I do not think that, yeah, you know what I mean? Sure. Like if we take that from him and then say, okay, now instead of that, um, we're going to give this money to this town so that they can build better infrastructure rails, that's where we're going to see actual economic growth. Yeah, I think you're and right. And that helps pay down the get too. So True. we need to tax things. We need to tax assets that are not improving or that are not being uh, that are not helping our GDP growth. Yeah. Well, I think I think wealth tax specifically is the best option because well, those are also high income taxes. Yeah, high income, but but particularly those are rent seeking endeavors. Beautiful. Right. Thank you. Like like wealth gains are completely coming from just owning something that happens to have other people who want to pay more for it. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so any type of rent-seeking behavior, those are the industries that taxes have to come from. Yeah. That's the stuff. Okay. That's the stuff that has to come from. Yeah. Um, we want to, yeah, I mean, that that that's everything. What about tariffs? Like, I'm trying to think, are there any specific goods go specific, that are I think bought are. By, by upper-class individuals more often that we can place tariffs on? Yeah, luxury taxes. Sure. International luxury taxes, I think, would be a great idea. I yeah. think that's totally fine. You want to do tariffs for boats that are bought from exactly Netherlands? boats and jets. Yeah, yes, yeah. massive luxury tariffs. I'm totally cool with that. Cool. I totally agree with that. Okay. I think there's. Um, is there anything else I want to say about this? Because it's a good topic of conversation. If there's a, if you want to put a tariff on something that is not a strategic input to the United States manufacturing process. Like one of the things that sure. one of the things that Trump 
tariffed was steel. Mm-hmm. That's a huge mistake because steel is an input for so many different things in the U.S. that it raises prices for everybody. Yeah, the idea of putting a tariff on any like like raw material just a nightmare seems very foolish. Yeah. You only want to put it on some assembled good. And again, what is Trump trying to do there with the ta- with the tariff on steel? He's trying to bring America down on the value chain, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, we talk about that all the time. America is transitioning to a service economy. Yeah, any tariff that's not helping us get to that transition is a mistake. But again, and I'll like I'll give not not even credit, but his point of view is that he's trying to bring back manufacturing to the United States. Mm-hmm. And so that's another way of saying bring us down in the value chain all but obviously bringing manufacturing jobs to the US has been politically favorable for a very long time. Yeah. Um and so I I don't think that in itself is necessarily a bad thing to try to do. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's still going to be produced more cheaply in other countries. And since the importers don't have to pay the tariffs, Mm -hmm. they're going to keep importing it. And it's the wrong industry to do it. Yeah. Biden picked the right industry, semiconductors, right? That's the industry. And we see a record amount of manufacturing facilities getting built right now. And Biden did it through incentives, not tariffs. Yes. He did it through the carrot, not the stick. And we're going to see the benefits of that with massive GDP growth in the years to come. There are estimates now already. Now, this is not because of Biden's industrial policy, but there's estimates from, uh, I think, the Federal Reserve of St. Louis or something. Maybe it was Dallas. But- United States GDP for the next quarter could be 6%. We totally forgot to talk about that. Yeah, for, for Q3, the, the estimates, and these are estimates that are usually very, very good. I oh, yeah. I mean, you're only the 0.2 off. Yeah. Right? Um, Max, you're 0.2, 0.3 off. Yeah. So I'm very curious what's driving that. Yeah, I but, can't wait to talk about that next. Yeah. You know, that, that next quarter three report for the GDP growth is going to be insane if it's a 6% number. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be, we're already seeing the highest GDP growth in the G7. Um, we might start seeing the highest GDP growth in the G20 if we get to 7% in the third quarter. So amazing stuff. So for our deep dive. Deep dive. We are talking about political media. And so this is something that's been on my mind for a while. First of all, because we are now in the space. Are we political media now? (laughs) We we are technically political media. That's crazy. Um, And so I guess talking about it can make us seem more interesting and self-aware than... um, yeah, it'll be kind of like a meta conversation. It right? will, yeah. Uh, but also because a lot of times we talk through these problems, and when you get to the core of it, you realize that the reason that they can't be fixed is political will isn't there. Mm-hmm. And so, why isn't political will there? Well, it often tends to be the thought processes, right, of certain people. And the way that those are often governed is based on the media that people consume. Definitely. Because very few people are involved, engaged, curious enough to really scope out enough information to learn about the issues themselves. So really it's time consuming. It's really hard. Oh my God. If you want to be like, dude, the amount of research we do to talk about six current events Mm -hmm. on a weekly basis is insane. So much. And then we do this deep dive. Right, which right. takes so much time. Yeah. So uh, we get it, obviously. Like, I, I would never put this much time in if we didn't do the podcast. No. Um, but because of that, it means that I think most people tend to be under-informed, right? Because people are generally 
getting their information from one source or if they get it from multiple sources, they get it from multiple sources that give them a similar perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so basically because of that and because we live in a democracy where the people decide who governs, it's a really important part of the political ecosystem. Uh, so I'm going to start at the very, very beginning of political media. Yeah, you went into the history of this and I thought it's so fucking interesting. Dude. Yeah, it is pretty interesting. I really, I had a few like specific points, so I don't have really a continuous line, but where it really began in America was in Boston where we were at because there were high literacy rates and a desire for self-government. And this happened before the revolution. So we're talking like 1750s, 1760s. And something big happened in 1765 where the stamp tax was implemented. And the stamp tax was, was levied by Britain, by, um, by Royal England to make it harder for the colonists to disseminate information out amongst each other because they thought that it might make them harder to control, harder to govern. Well, it worked. They caused many newspapers to shudder, and that triggered the papers to start trying to incite riots and rebellion. Mm -hmm. They were basically fighting for their own survival and saying, hey, it's wrong for us to get taxed like this, and you should be mad on our behalf. And so people started to get angry. And the papers had a huge part in in really inciting the revolution, spiraling up to the point where you get the Boston Tea Party in 1773, you get the Boston Massacre, and they're suggesting an American governing body equal to that of England. So once you get that, and you have England continuing to tax without representation, that's where it, it really was these newspapers that prepare the fertile soil for the revolution. Kind yeah, of. And, and that's like a great example of what the media is like its greatest power is. Yes. Is to truly make public opinion or expand the reach of specific opinions that are people wanting to know, but they don't have all the pieces together yet. Yes. Right? It's, it's like something that... It's like it's like you know this have you have this general feeling of why of something you feel you don't know why you feel it you don't know what to do with that but with media and with the outreach of political groups and newspapers and news organizations you learn what's going on in the wider world and then how you can affect it. Exactly. Yeah, it it galvanizes people who who already have opinions and it kind of gives opinions to people who maybe weren't that involved before. Mm -hmm. Um media in in this way, like it's a perfect example, like you're saying, media is the thought leaders. And I would say like this is a reason that I enjoy doing the podcast and would like to grow it completely transparently because I, I would like to be one of those thought leaders. Mm -hmm. I feel like and I think we're both this way where we we learn about things and we don't just listen to to other sources of information. We read the information, we dissect it ourselves and we come to our own opinions right um and that feels like enough work and worthy enough to disseminate it out to people and i think it makes a difference i mean I'll, we just said it takes a lot of time to sit here and analyze the news and analyze what's going on analyze the specific policy analyze what's in the chips act 
And when we do it, we don't just want us to know. We want all of you to know. Yeah. Because we want an informed voter base. We want everyone to know what's going on. Exactly. That's in our interest. It's for the nation's interest. And that's what media is when it's at its best. Absolutely. So you get the the media comes into the revolution. It starts. And after the revolution, there's a new era. It's called the party press era. So newspaper publications became distinctly partisan because editors received patronage from the parties because fees and advertising revenues were not enough to support printing costs. So because of this, newspapers started aligning to the parties who were paying for them to be printed. And in fact, many of the editors on the newspapers were those very politicians. Wow. It got to the point where the second president, John Adams, passed the Sedition Act in 1798, which barred publications from criticizing the government, which thinking about that right now is is it's unthinkable. Fortunately, Thomas Jefferson, the third president, repealed it during his tenure in office. Uh, but this was kind of the seeds of capitalist capture yeah. of the media of information. Right. And. I think it's a really important time to point out because those are the seeds of the plants of media that we're still dealing with today. Right. Obviously. That, that type of capitalist capture happens all the time. I yeah. mean, we, when we, we, we read Politico a lot and you know, a lot of times you'll see sponsored by Lockheed Martin at the top. Or yeah. Every time I listen to the Politico playbook every morning and during the weekdays and it'll be like sponsored by petroleum energy associates or something. Yep. <laughs> And it's like, okay, are you going to sit here and tell me that that doesn't affect the story you cover? Yeah. Or like they'll have ads on their website that is completely looking like an article, but it's actually written by the corporation that gave the money. Mm -hmm. And you have to be really careful. Politico does some good work. They do a lot of also sleazy stuff. You know what I mean? You got to so, be careful. It's interesting when we think about this because we, again, I, I think this is a great opportunity for us to be transparent about what we're doing. Yeah. Because I, we, we've definitely thought about monetizing this. Yeah. Which we are not at the point of doing yet at no. all. Not even close. No. But does it make you think, like, do we have to be very selective about the advertisers that we get? Oh, yeah. Even if we unequivocally say we're not going to let you influence what we say, we have to make sure that the image also is that there's nothing influencing what we could be talking about. I think about. that image is important for credibility reasons for us, of yeah. course. But I think it's also, like, I think they should, the audience should expect more from their media. You know what I mean? Like the audience shouldn't have to accept that they live in a world that Lockheed Martin owns the news you're reading, mm. right? I think that's kind of messed up. Sure. Because when push comes to shove, you do butter your bread. You you butter your bread with the, you know, whatever. Uh, what's the phrase? I don't know. You're like in bed with your with the people. I don't yeah, know. What, whatever. You the know people what paying your paychecks yes. control you. Yes. And that's the point. Every time. Okay, it doesn't matter how often you say like, no, I'm not going to be bought out. If they give you money, push comes to shove. But the question is then who's okay to take money from? Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's really hard, but there's, I mean, like, I don't know, some stupid like book company or something like, yeah, something that's not high stakes. Someone who sells mattresses. Someone who sells mat. Yeah, exactly. Like a mattress. Yeah. Something that's not politicized. Right. It's just not a, it's just not like a key industry that controls our pol political system. Okay. Right? Sure. I, I feel like that's I feel like that's fair. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Something that would hold up in a court of law, basically. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so the next the next thing that I talked about. So okay, so the party press era is said to have ended in eighteen thirty three. 
it started around like 1780s um, after the revolution. But basically the penny press was introduced, which allowed for a less expensive publication so that papers didn't have to rely on their patrons anymore. But it had kind of already sunk into the system. So the papers remained partisan. And in six, in 1860, the census said that still about 80% of publications were partisan. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's no incentive for the political people to lose these newspapers, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, if you're involved in politics and yeah. you've paid to keep these newspapers partisan, even if the larger economic reasons of doing so, of making it partisan in the first place, aren't there anymore, you're, if you're the political party, you're going to fight tooth and nail to keep them partisan because it's been benefiting you for so long. Yeah, and, and I wonder if this is... At, if this kind of mirrors what's now happening in the present, mm-hmm. where these these papers had captured audiences that liked what they were saying because they were on a certain partisan side. And so it made sense for business in that way as well. Well, now, so this is interesting because this is we're going to bring up this term audience capture. And in, Fo- in a lot of areas, Fox News, even on MSNBC, right, a lot of these shows are suffering from audience capture, where if... You know, you've been conservative your whole show, but now you disagree with a conservative commentator. If you say something negative about that conservative politician that you no longer like, what if your audience leaves you mm-hmm. and now you don't get the money anymore? Yeah. And, you know, us from a very, very small scale have actually seen that happen. We've posted videos that get us a lot of right wing support. And then we put another video out that's criticizing the right wing, and then we lose a bunch of followers. Yeah. We've had videos where we're very, very leftist, and then we post a conservative video, and then we lose a bunch of followers. Yeah. And it's like, do better, guys. I mean, <laughs> accept a differing opinion. Accept yeah. some, you know, don't be so stringent on your what you want to hear. Yes. Okay? Just accept an, a different form of analysis that you might not be used to. It's so funny because I see that as a way to make us more credible. Yeah. But to someone who wants incredible sources of information, they're going to go away. And does everybody want incredible source information? I hope not. Yeah. Please. Come on, guys. Yeah. Show us that you want to learn yeah. the truth. Yeah, please. God. We are the only source of truth. <laughs> um, Speaking of the truth, <laughs> what's our next phase? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, right. So yellow journalism is next. It, it arises it arises in the, like, the late 19th century with Joseph Pulitzer, yeah. of all people, which I didn't know about. Of course, you're more of a... A history buff, but that's it's just wild that the Pulitzer Prize for like the highest tier of writing comes and from journalism about. comes from the person who invented yellow journalism, which I haven't even said what it is yet. But it's sensational, it's scandalous, it's what you would expect in a tabloid right. today. Um, the crazy thing is, is it's it's psychologically addictive, so mm-hmm. it it triggered this different thing in people. And the reason I think it's important to to isolate this as an era is because before these sources of information were still, they were partisan, but they were about disseminating information. And now it's about activating people. It's about activating their nervous system, activating their fight or flight neurological circuitry. That's great. Right. And so with these, with these sensationalist stories, they were very heavily moralized and made people feel very strongly about the characters in them, their rightness or wrongness. 
it was it's more like when you watch a TV show or you read a novel and you get attached to these characters. These sensational stories could do the same thing, but that's extremely damaging because it's distortionary of real life. Mm-hmm. So there was a 1910 critique of the newspaper industry by Frances Fenton. She quoted President Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt's accusation that contemporary newspapers habitually and continually, and as a, as a matter of business practice, every of business practice every form of mendacity known to man. This is am I an idiot? What's mendacity mean? Um, Do you know? Or did I, did I just call you out? Yeah, make you look like an idiot. <laughs> you did. And finally, well, I've I finally given it back to you after all the times <laughs> you've made me look like a fool. You're the fool. All right, what's mendacity? Well, well I'm realizing. Oh, it means lying. Okay. Well, I'm realizing that, that I'm also stupid because this doesn't actually really connect to what the point I was just making. So. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to clip that and post that one. You should. You you there really you should. We just need to like start a war between yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, i posted a clip i posted a clip a little bit ago that had like this sarcastic spongebob on your shoulder yes. that was more roasting me it but was. i still thought that was funny it was so good um you know how long it took me to figure out how to do that <laughs> <laughs> totally worth it totally worth it um but the the rest of the quote is that it's so the as a matter of business, practice every form of mendacity known to man from the suppression of truth and the suggestion of the false to the lie direct. So I'll use this to transition to this other point that yellow journalism was the beginning of really straying from the truth. We talk about partisan reporting, and I think like MSNBC is a really good example of something that's very partisan but still deals in truth, mm-hmm. still deals in factual events. And I'm going to defend reality. Fox News. I also think Fox News at least tells the truth. It's a very hard thing to say, but like I feel like they're not actively lying to you about present reality. I think the difference is that Fox spends more time and energy, so much time and energy communicating opinions about yeah. the facts yeah. that it it almost becomes hard to parse out what the actual facts were. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Um so, but but this is Roosevelt, 1910, is critiquing, is criticizing newspapers for the the same thing, right? Suggestion of the false, suppression of the truth. Yeah, and that's where these these media outlets get their power from. Mm-hmm. They get to decide what to report on, and they get to decide what perspective to report on it. Yes. Um, the there was a really specific instance of this where William Randolph Hearst, who was kind of like Pulitzer's competitor in the yellow journalism sphere Didn't know that. at cool. the time, um, he his his coverage of the sinking of the USS Maine was really sensationalist and potentially started the Spanish-American War. I mean, there was no hard evidence that Spain sunk. <clears throat> that Sp- Jesus Christ, I just lose my voice? Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> There's no evidence that Spain sunk the USS Maine. Yeah. But when you read William's explanation of it it very much seems like oh spain definitely did it and so this it's that kind of reporting that can start wars that can lead white nationalists to kill people this is so and it's and it's also the kind of reporting that gets people to read it yes and that's why it's so powerful as a business tool yeah um so this that was yellow journalism this leads into the, my next phase, which I really I skip over a lot of time. There's probably there was a, a lot that I could have talked about with McCarthyism, 
but I skipped to Roger Ailes. Which is the most you know important for us to understand in the current world we live in, right? He basically makes our current media environment. Exactly. So he he first came up as an advisor to Nixon in the late 60s, early 70s. And he suggested to Nixon that there wasn't a conservative-friendly media outlet, that the, the existing TV outlets were all leaning liberal, mm-hmm. um, which I'm... I speculate is just because liberals follow reality a little bit more um, or they have more popular policies, but that's, that's just a uh, 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 speculation. Um, so he spearheads the development of kind of pre Fox news outlets in the late seventies and yeah. the early eighties. And of course in 1996 Fox news begins and he's heading that up. Um, and he Ailes died a few years ago, but he's kind of been the pioneer of creating this entire separate echo chamber or just just chamber and space for conservative news to exist on TV and in spaces that are respected at the same level as more liberal-leaning news or even more neutral news programs. We're already saying that, right? Like, think about the idea of we need a conservative news network. Isn't the news the news? What do you mean a conservative news network? Exactly. Like, that's so confusing to me. Like, you, you have online, you have Wikipedia, right? Mm-hmm. There's another website called Conservapedia, where it's Wikipedia, but all the topics are through a lens of conservatism, right? Yes. And so that's so strange that there's conservative news. Yes. Like, because, there's a different reality to it? Because Wikipedia, I cannot, I cannot think of a source that is more... Um, like nonpartisan, right. that is more impartial yep. to reality and the facts. Uh, but the problem is that those facts tend to counter conservative viewpoints so often yeah. that they seek out their own their own outlets. And in a way, the last thing I'll mention is social media has kind of been this last the last frontier of this. Yeah. And it's, I, I don't know my conclusions of it yet at all. It's, I think it's perfected it, right? Because, because if anyone can publish news and anyone can decide to consume or believe it from anyone else, then it's not just that you have like Fox news as an outlet. You can go to any level of extremism. And this, this is true for both sides, right? You yeah. can find sources that are ignoring counter arguments that are espousing ideologies that are violent and saying that that violence is the morally right thing to do absolutely absolutely and and there's and in fact the the social media platforms will tend to get you down those rabbit holes and i've read some studies that said that the the rabbit hole hypothesis kind of is a little exaggerated and that people aren't necessarily sent down them from more mild viewpoints but they can be and those more radical viewpoints are often again they're more click worthy so it's this dangerous place where where even though the internet is exciting and that it democratizes information it's also really dangerous because is, is all information equal and right yeah and you're supposed to be able and and by a democratized information system we hope that the right information wins out and mm-hmm. gets the most views, but that is not what's happening. It it makes me think of economics versus behavioral economics. Mm-hmm. Like an economist 
would think that it's better to have the most information because the rational observer will be able to find out what the right information is. Right. The behavioral economists will say, no, dummy. People don't want to spend all of their time reading the news and figuring out what's real. Yep. So they're not going to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now, so with the rise of social media, this is a study from 2014 done by the Pew Research Association, Pew Research Center. And obviously, 2014 is an old study. So, but already in 2014, 48% of people said Facebook was among their top way of getting the news. 2014. That's 48%. Yeah. CNN is 44, Fox News 39 in this. Local TV at 49. I guarantee you, you do this study today, Facebook is at that top 60, 70%. No way it's still at 50%. Probably. There's no way. And But already 2014, we see it topping off all the cable news channels. Mm-hmm. You know, and then Facebook. Who is one of the most popular people on Facebook? Ben Shapiro and The Daily Wire. And this is where I want to talk about some of the rise of right-wing thought leaders that have become very prominent online over the last few years, especially the last two. Um, We saw the rise of Jordan Peterson in 2018 and 2019. I think even earlier, maybe 2016 was his rise. But Jordan B. Peterson was not specifically deeply right-wing back in those days. He just wasn't. He's changed, and he's moved further to the right more than ever recently. But this is not where he started. Ben Shapiro, right? For all the bad takes I think he has for all the conservatism that he holds, I don't think, again, he is also as bad as some of the people who are rising now. We are in a new era. First guy, Matt Walsh, and I want to talk about some things around Matt Walsh and some of the things he's talked about. So Matt Walsh has previously said that opposing all-age drag events was like fighting cancer, and he said, just like cancer, stopping it is not a gentle or painless process. What else can you take from that other than a call to violence? Mm. Right. How well doesn't it make sense that the guy who shot somebody for having a rainbow colored cloth is listening to this guy who says that the LGBT drag show, whatever narrative is like a cancer that is not a painless process to get rid of. He's telling people to go out and cut it out by shooting them in the head. That's what he's telling people to do. Okay. He says that um, people who are. um, What else does he say here? Okay, he. He claims that the pride flag is directly satanic, okay, which is a little less, okay? That's a, listen, listen, we're balanced here. That's not a call to violence. That's just being an asshole. You could argue, I don't know, for an evangelical. <laughs> oh, true, right? Yeah. If you're an evangelical reading that. Yeah. Yeah, right? So in 2022, Matt Walsh campaigned against um, hospitals providing transgender health care, um, and it led to the Boston's Children's Hospital, right around the corner from us, um, he, he directly attacked the Boston Children's Hospital, directly attacking it. And a bunch of harassment was happened, death threats, a hoax bomb threat in August of 2022 last year. Wow. Had, the whole building had to get evacuated. Um, uh, a, that woman who called in the bomb threat was actually arrested is it, in last September. That's good. So, but this is what's happening. He's calling out this like Boston Children's Hospital, mm-hmm. and it's leading to someone calling it a bomb threat. So Matt Walsh is a dangerous person. Next, we have Michael Knowles, okay? Michael Knowles actually came to Boston University last year, and he gave a speech. And I talked, I, I like, I, I was friends with a couple of the guys in the conservative club at Boston University. That's where me and Ben went to school. And, you know, I respected a couple of them. I didn't respect all of them. I didn't like all of them. But I would sit down, and I would talk to them, and I would go to their meetings, and we'd hang out afterwards and have a good time together. We'd, you know, it would be cool. 
Um, but I asked him, I'm like, why Michael Knowles? Michael Knowles is not the type of person that you want to be as your conservative thought leader. And why do I think that? Is he says that there is no middle way in dealing with transgenderism. Uh, for the good of society, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. Yeah. What does that mean other than a direct call for violence, right? How else could you at all interpret that? Yeah. And then he says that America needs to be as conservative as people were in 1220 A.D., uh, 1220 AD. So that's like all of the slavery. That's like all of the religious violence. Yeah. Like that's like before that's like anti-Protestant levels of religious violence. Right. I mean, so this is the type of people we're dealing with here. And so what, what is the cause of this or like, or what is the effect of this rather? Well, the effect is this in 2020, 94, 95%, 93%, somewhere around there of all terrorist attacks were right-wing terrorist attacks in the United States, 94%. Um, In the the early 2000s, there was more commonly left-wing violence. This violence was targeted towards properly specifically, and a lot of it was associated with, like, um, animal rights and targeting animal stuff. And right-wing violence is not targeting animal stuff. Um, In 14 of the 21 years between 1994 and 2019, in which fatal terrorist attacks occurred, the majority of deaths resulted from right-wing attacks. In eight of those years, right-wing attacks caused all of the fatalities. And in three more, including 2018 and 2019, they were responsible for more than 90% of annual fatalities. So this type of media environment with Roger Ailes, with Matt Walsh, with Michael Knowles, it has a body trail. And that's what we saw in Jacksonville, that's what we saw with Lori getting shot for putting a pride flag up. That's what we're seeing now. People are dying because of hatred that is being spread and profited from by these people. Yeah. It is hard because I think that Michael Knowles quote does like it does sound really close to promoting violence specifically. Mm-hmm. But most of this isn't. Like right. most of this rhetoric isn't. And that seems like a really safe place to draw a line to be like, okay, you don't incite violence. But besides that, what can how you, do? you can't really control the conversation if you do want to maintain First Amendment rights for everybody. I feel like the best thing that we could do, honestly, is keep them accountable on other forms of media and make sure that everybody's aware of what they're saying. Mm. You know what I mean? Sure. And, and, and make sure that people know the dangers. Um, when I was younger, when I was like 15, 16 years old, I almost went down the right-wing rabbit hole on YouTube, right? And it was very easy back in 2015, 2016 to become hyper-radicalized. As a teenager who's, you know, growing up and learning his place in the world, you stumble upon some, you know, videos making fun of, you know, feminists. Ten minutes later, you're watching Ben Shapiro. Ten minutes later, you're watching Jordan B. Peterson. And then if you're really unlucky, 10 minutes later, you're watching Stefan Molyneux. If any of you out there know who he is, he's a very dangerous individual. And then after that, you get into Alex Jones and then you're done, right? And it's very easy to go from a, each one of those steps to the next video, to the next video. Nowadays, we have guys like Nick Fuentes out there who are hyper-Christian nationalists, white supremacists that are capturing a large amount of of this disaffected majority white demographic of males that have no place to channel their discontent with the current system other than hatred of somebody else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
it's interesting too because there are differences like there are nuances among these figures because i do there think are. like a nick fuentes does channel that that discontent that anger towards other groups but someone like jordan peterson he emphasizes constantly how it's the individual's problem how any how them not being good enough is their fault how it's not anyone else's fault and it's harmful in a different way because it still promotes the objectification of others oftentimes of women um but the core message to me isn't hate other people mm -hmm. it's improve yourself it, and it's just kind of the the externalities that support that um that claim which end up being problematic yeah and you know i again we've talked you, you've said this i don't know how to police this i don't know how to change this i just know it's an issue and you know i i want more people to be aware that these guys what they're saying is promoting stochastic terrorism what about the approach on like a smaller individual level of people who, because I think liberals um, will, will vilify people in their own social circles who they hear supporting or appreciating Jordan Peterson, right? Yeah, well, you will. Like, like he's, he's almost like, like the perfect bridge figure. Where yeah. he, he's not he's not an Andrew Tate he's not quite a Ben Shapiro yet even right true right he he feels like um like he he sounds intelligent sounds like an intellectual uh he'll say, he says things that will really resonate with a broad audience mm -hmm. and then can take them to that side I think hearing people talk about uh like consuming his content or even like liking something that an Andrew Tate says. Um, or these other content creators trying to give them space, not immediately casting these people out or more often, I think it's like, it's ridiculing them. It's laughing at them. It's, it's just not taking them seriously, not trying to understand why they are resonating with these messages and instead just push them aside for doing so. Genuinely, you need more compassion. Yeah. You need more compassion and you need more patience. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that, you know, I feel like liberals could actually do. If you have more patience with the people who have gone down these rabbit holes, who have gone down these media rabbit holes, and you can continue talking to them, I think that there's actual progress that you can make with yes. them. And what happens when you go down these rabbit holes, when this is a really good... So when people... Not to say that all right-wing politics is like a cult, because it's not. But when people get involved into a cult, the most important thing to help them get out of it is to not totally abandon them. Like once a pe person gets into a cult, once a person gets into an ideology and it becomes their whole life, all their friends start becoming like that. All the media they consume becomes like that. And it gets really, really difficult for them to justify leaving all of that behind to go and be alone. Mm -hmm. Because that's what would happen if they decide to leave the ideological ecosystem they've built for themselves. But if you're there with that life preserver waiting for them, ready to accept them back and help them back to shore, that goes a long way. Totally. Totally. And it's there are also different levels to this because people will 
I've gotten responses from people when I when I try to encourage uh, or like I put out a message of being accepting of 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 compassion of people who have different viewpoints from you, especially on the left. They say, no, this isn't the way to fight fascism. Right. Fascism is always defeated. It's not brought in under your umbrella. I think that's true. But not all Republicans are fascists. Yes. And that's hard for some people to accept and get through their head. The, you, um, we have people who unfortunately vote for fascists yeah. because they are not given the benefit of the doubt to have a reasonable conversation and sit down with. Yeah. So they think that the fascists will be the only ones that accept them. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what ends up happening. I mean, this is what happened in Germany. Yep. Like they, even though they supported the Nazis, they weren't like these individuals would not espouse fascist ideology and and i mean some of them will in the republican party maybe even maybe even 20 to 25 to 30 percent of republicans are and i think i can probably get on board with not trying to pull those people to your side or or i guess i can get on board with fighting those people instead of trying to bring them in yeah uh but so many aren't and more than you guys think. Yeah, and I just think understanding that people generally aren't evil, that people generally, everyone is just trying to feel good. Everyone is just trying to do what makes them feel right. And just because you have a different internal compass that points you towards a, a different right than them doesn't necessarily make you better or mm -hmm. make them specifically worse yeah yeah know. you had another angle you wanted to go in with yeah. the media right yeah i have so i have a couple more things um first on the more so on the more specifically like i want to zoom into fox news real quick uh and say why it's so specifically powerful which is that it is enormously popular and is the most trusted source of information on on cable news for the demographic that consumes the most cable news. Oh, that's really interesting. Because the cable viewership obviously already skews Republican. It's older. It's generally more white. Um, and because of that specific place, it makes it more politically powerful. So Republicans will play towards and they'll they'll speak in ways that they think will get them onto Fox News. So there's an example like Senators Ted Cruz and Marsha Blackburn asking exaggerated questions of President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, um, Kentonji Brown-Jackson. Blackburn asked Jackson how she defined woman on March 22nd, and it sent Blackburn from an average of one mention on Fox News per day over the previous week to five mentions per day in the week beginning March 22nd. Wow. So they're they're playing for the attention of the base because they know it'll get them votes and saying er, like asking things that are less pertinent uh to the topic at hand mm -hmm. will do that yep um so I, that's just a quick point and then i had some bigger picture thoughts uh that i thought would be kind of interesting to talk about so one thing that came to my mind is whether political media is making people significantly less happy. 
in the U.S. And I, I couldn't really, I found a few studies, but not a ton of hard data here. But I feel like it's just, it's likely a negative distraction from the tranquility that people can have in their own lives. And so there were Dutch researchers in 2017 that found that for every hard political news show consumed per week, well-being fell 6.1%. And there was an Atlantic writer who used 2014 data to, found, to find that people who identified themselves as very interested in politics were about eight percentage points more likely to say they were not very happy about life. Oh my god! So this that's was, relatable. You no, know, honestly, <laughs> this was scary on a personal level because I've often fa- found myself like feeling that the political realities of the world in this country are more real than my real life, and like, and I'm I'm a person who's like often very in my head, so that makes sense for me. But it did really trigger me to like just experience, I don't know, the room around me, like the external world. And that really calmed me down a lot. And the way I think is is people who are watching, particularly Fox News, which really does work to to stir up those fight or flight emotional responses in people based on making them really angry about things. I'm thinking that this demographic is almost entirely well off, right? Like yeah. these these issues that you're worried about, these issues that we think about solving, right? Even you and I sitting here, like we, we think about how we want a better economy, how specifically we want to help people and raise people up who are more economically disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. How twisted would it be for us to not enjoy the privilege that we do have ourselves and instead mire ourselves in discontent right because we are aware of the discontent of others yeah and so that kind of just like hit me like a wave when i was thinking about this and i want to like anyone who's watching this is probably deep enough down a political rabbit hole that it could definitely have the potential of making you unhappy oh yeah for sure so be careful of that and realize that Everything that you consume through a screen and like read is not actually real life. Yeah. Like even though it is happening around and this can stimulate positive political action, think about what is real relationships um, that does make you happy. No matter what, your personal happiness is always going to come above everything else in, in, in importance, right? And it must. And it must. Because otherwise, you're not going to be a good soldier for revolution and for reform and for change if you're an unhappy person anyway. Yeah. Right? Um, and look, I've had a lot of trouble with that. So many times have I gotten depressed thinking about like how I'm scared that the, the world won't solve these problems. And climate catastrophe anxiety and depression is a real thing in our generation it's a real thing you feel hopeless there's nothing we can really do about it right mm-hmm. um yet but now the gen z is getting into power we can change things but like we there's nothing we could really do the younger generations are all scared and i think like it's important to understand that going into getting involved in politics and you know sometimes pull yourself out of it take breaks yeah you know, because it's it, it's hard to always constantly be thinking about. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that leads to a lot of people gamifying it. Totally. Because when you gamify it, it becomes less real. You know, yes. I don't want to say politics is a game to me because it isn't. But is it, you know, make it easier to zoom out and talk about Meatball Ron as if some type of joke or like 
watch the Republican debates and do an analysis like it's a cage fight, just, yeah, it's easier to do it that way because you don't want to think about Nikki Haley raising the retirement age. You don't want to think about Ron DeSantis getting rid of abortion nationwide. You don't want to think about Vivek Ramaswamy destroying the entire executive branch of the United States. Sometimes it's just fun to think, oh, man, Chris Christie really did get a good dunk on him by calling him chat GBT. That was funny. Yeah. You know? So. I'm good. I think I'm good, too, guys. Cool. All right. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week.